Well, this week's uh, reading is found in Genesis 22. If you want to turn your Bibles there, I would appreciate it. Genesis 22. This is a a jam-packed little chapter here. You know, it's only uh, 24 verses or so long. But in here, there is so much. And we could spend, I would say, a better part of a month, four weeks, probably teaching through this chapter alone, how much is jam-packed into this. And uh, this is... This is a daunting task for me to teach through it and to try to really convey the essence of this chapter. This is a huge chapter. The book of Genesis, if you look at it, the book of Genesis, just alone, a standalone narrative. Let's just pull that that book out of the five books of the Torah and look at the book of Genesis. It's a narrative that it describes the gospel in a very, what I would describe as like progressively revelatory way. So you have in Genesis 3, you have have the fall of man, Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, you have a hint at a snake crusher that's going to come and and crush the head of the serpent, right? And then you have a couple other little little downfalls. You have like Noah and you have these little spikes of like, and when I say spike, I don't mean like the, the level of morality of human beings. I'm talking about a spike in revelation of God's plan to redeem and restore his creation, okay? And we get to Genesis 22, we're going to see a big spike there in in our level of revelation of what God has in store for us as humanity and how he's going to bring it all back together, how how he's going to bring about salvation. Okay, and then when we, I say, I I think when we get to the end of Genesis, things are going to really slow down in Genesis chapter 37 through the end of Genesis, we're going to be introduced to a new character who's a suffering servant, who is betrayed by his brothers, who is um, sold into, into Egypt, and, and we're going to see a huge spike in the level of revelation we see about God's res, um, redemptive plan that we nowadays, looking back, can say that's the gospel. Genesis 22 is one of those spikes that we're going to see, one of these big aha moments that we're going to have in terms of what God has. We're really slowing down the story right here in this chapter. If you think about it, we're only 20 chapters, 20, 21 chapters into the Bible. And things are moving really quickly. When it hits Abraham, things slow down to a crawl in terms of the the chronological progression of this narrative. And we go just day by day almost, year by year with Abraham up until the the end of the the story of Abraham. And you're going to see that in Genesis chapter 22. Things really slow down even more as we go through this narrative. Now this story is called, for those Hebrew readers... The Akkad, or and, and it's called the Akidah. The Akidah. Akkad means to bind. Now, when I told you to bind, like you thought maybe with the ropes, you were seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly with the end where he binds him and behind he ties his wrist behind his back. And remember that in the end, and the guy is like, they're trying to get that money out of the grave and all that stuff, and he binds him with the ropes. The Clint Eastwood guy does, and um, and leaves and he ride, rides off there hanging leaves leaves on. But then he turns around and shoots the rope just in time to save the guy's life, just to teach the guy kind of a lesson like you left me hanging literally. I'm gonna leave you hanging, but then I'm gonna save your life at the last second, and then you're gonna have all this money and everything. But he bound his hands behind his back, and he couldn't even get the money. He was laying there on this money, and it was kind of this moment of irony where he his life was saved, but his hands were bound. And uh, you ever seen, have you ever seen someone that gets bound by ropes and the, the ropes are tied really tightly and you take the ropes off, what are left? Stripes. There's marks, like stripes. Yeah, almost like if you 
you wound something around your arm really tightly, you'd have these stripes. But this, um, that's that a little bit later. But this story of the Akidah is pivotal in all of Judaism to this day. So much to the point that the Akedah is read every single day in the morning Shakarit prayers. For those who don't know, Jews pray three times daily, and the morning one is called the Shakarit. This story, a recap of the story, is said at the beginning of the morning prayers every single day as a way to invoke the righteousness of their father Abraham, our father Abraham, before going into a time of prayer. It's said seven days a week, 12 months a year, and it's read specifically at Rosh Hashanah in synagogues, and then it's read again in the Torah cycle, as we read through the Torah cycle. That's around 367 times a year that this story is read in the life of an observant Jew. That is a very big and important story. Do you understand? I hope I can convey that enough for you. Let's, um, let's dig into it, if you don't mind. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. It says, after these things. Now, what are the things that we're after? You remember, uh, Mike did a good job teaching last week. What, what did he teach on? What happened? Remember, Hagar and Ishmael were cast out of the camp. They were exiled. Remember, Abraham had a moment of not trusting that Sarah would conceive, and he, con- he, took, he seized the fruit by force. Remember, kind of a Garden of Eden narrative? And he had a child with Hagar, but eventually Sarah and Hagar, they don't get along, go figure. Like any polygamous relationship in the Bible happens just that way. And then Hagar, someone has to pay. Hagar gets cast out, right? And Ishmael is out there as well. And it says, after all that happens, all that awkwardness and, and dysfunction happens, it says, after all these things, God nasa Avraham. Now this word there, nasa in the Hebrew, how many of you have tested? Okay. I think a better translation, mine is tested as well. I think a better translation is to prove. He wanted to prove Avraham. So he said to him, Avraham. And he answered, what did he answer? He named me. This is important because this is the very first time we see this phrase show up in the Torah. He named me. Anywhere in the Bible for that matter. He named me. We're going to see this phrase several more times though. He named me. And he's saying, here I am. It's not as if God doesn't know where Abraham is. He knows where he is. He's not talking about here I am, my geographical location. What is he saying by Hineni? Hineni is a compound word. It's two Hebrew words smushed together. Him, like a chicken, him, and ani. And it's saying, him means behold or to look. Look, him. Ani means me, I. So Abraham is responding, behold, me. Hineni is an offer of complete availability. It's a, it's a phrase which indicates total readiness to serve. It's a simple statement of faith. I don't know, yeah, I don't know what you have in store for me, but behold, here I am. Hineni. Hineni. We're going to see this repeated. It's a very loaded phrase, but it's a phrase of surrender. 
It's interesting that it comes right on the heels of what happened with Hagar and Ishmael. It seems like Avraham has had this very come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, after watching Hagar and his son and the repercussions of his own sin and, and the dysfunction that, that has brought into his family, his lack of trusting that is brought on his family. He had to watch that unfold. And then some time passes, and then God calls him again and says, are you ready to trust me now? And he says what? He named me. Here I am. Right? We're going to see this pop up again. Go with me to Exodus 3.1. Exodus 3.1. I want to convey to you the gravity of this phrase, he named me. Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was tending sheep, the sheep of his father-in-law Yitro, the priest of Midian. He was leading the flock to a far side of the desert. And he came to the mountain, the mountain of God to Horeb. The angel of Adonai appeared to him in a fire blazing from the middle of the bush. He looked and saw, although the bush was flaming with fire, yet the bush was not being burned up. Moshe said, I'm, go, I'm going to go over and see this amazing sight and find out why the bush is not being consumed. And when Adonai saw that he had gone over to see, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moshe, Moshe. And he answered, here it is, he named me. Here I am. Go with me to Isaiah 6 now. Isaiah chapter 6. Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu 6. Go to verse 8. Now, Isaiah obviously is a profound prophet that's going to have a lot of revelation to share with us from God about the coming Mashiach, about Messiah. And here, towards the beginning of his whole revelation that he's going to give, it says in verse 8, Isaiah 6, 8, Then I heard the voice of Adonai saying, Whom should I send? Whom will go for us? And I, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, answered, He named me, send me. So this phrase is not the only times we see this phrase, he named me, but every time we see it, something big is about to happen. Someone is showing a posture of surrender to the Most High in some way. But this is the first occurrence of it. It's exciting. And we're going to see, watch with me how many times Abraham is going to use this phrase. Verse 2. He said, Take your benecha, your son, et yachid asher ahava. Take your only son, your yachid. Notice it doesn't use echad, which can mean more than one, but unified. It uses yachid. Your only son. Is this, is this Abraham's only son? No, he has Ishmael as well. But it puts a qualifier in there. It says, your only son, Asher Ahava. Ahava. And what does Ahava mean? Love. Love. Now, this word Ahava is another compound word. It, uh, it, the root of it, I should say, is Hav. Does anyone know what Hav means? It means to give. To give, it's a gift. So ahava means an action of giving. And I always tell people, you can love someone, but it's evidenced through your giving to them. Not just talking about material possessions, I'm talking about your giving of yourself to them in some way. But you cannot love someone and not give to them. Alright, you got me? Now this reminds me, obviously, of John 3.16. 3, 
you can quote it from memory. For God so what? Love the world that he gave. You see the connection there? His who? Only son. Okay, we're supposed to hear that going on in this, in this narrative right now. And it says, whom you love. Now, this is the very first time we see the word love in the entire Bible. This is it right here. And it says, Yitzchak, which means laughter, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, that's important there as well, because what will be built according to the sages on the Mount of Moriah? The temple will. The temple will be built on Mount Moriah. He is going to the place, the future home of the Beit Hamikdash, the holy temple. Now, can we prove that from the Bible, though? Yeah, I wouldn't ask that question if I couldn't, right? <laughs> Go with me to 2 Chronicles 3.1. Go with me to 2 Chronicles 3.1. 2 Chronicles 3.1. Sometimes, you know, sages, they say things, and they're like, oh, man, I don't know. And sometimes they're like spot on. Yeah. 2 Chronicles 3.1 says, I know you're still turning there, but I'll, read, I'll take one for the team and just read it for you here. It says, then Solomon began to build the house of Adonai in Jerusalem on where? Mount Moriah, where Adonai had appeared to his father, David. Interesting. So there it is. It lines up. We're going to the temple mounts to sacrifice his only son, the son whom he loves. Now, I remember I grew up in church. I grew up in Sunday school. Um, and even after Stacy and I got married, you know, I don't know if this counts, but we were Presbyterians for a number of years. And then, but I remember, <laughs> got some laughs at it. I remember the first time going to a Messianic synagogue. It's probably been 13, 12, 13 years ago. I don't know. And hearing one of the first times I was there, the rabbi was teaching on the Akedah, this passage of scripture. And I remember for the first time ever hearing it taught as if this is a prefigurative uh, shadow of the crucifixion of Yeshua. Now, some of you, maybe you already knew that. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, that's, duh, come on. I learned that in, in, in like at nine years old in Sunday school. Well, I didn't know that. So when I first heard this taught by a Messianic rabbi and he's sharing this from his perspective, I was, my mind was blown. So it's exciting to be able to teach us today and weave that back into it. He says though, go to Mount Moriah. Then you, there you are to offer, you're to Allah. Allah, like it means to go up, to go up and smoke. It's, or it, you know, remember in Genesis 2, 6, where it says that the earth was, the, that the mist would go up and it would water the earth. You guys remember that? That's that same verb, Allah. If you go in, a, in an elevator in Israel right now, um, it's called the uh, Aliyim, those going up. It's a, it's a, it's a go up. Offer him up as a burnt offering on a, on a mountain that I will point out to you. Verse 3. Avram got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him together with Yitzchak, his son. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. And it says here, like literally, he, he made a becca with the wood. He broke it in half. Uh, baka means to split. He split the wood for the burnt offering. This is also later a beka is what we describe as the temple tax. It's half a shekel. It's a broken shekel. It's the temple tax called a beka. 
He departed there and went toward the Hamakom, the place God had told him about. On the third day, Avram raised his eyes and saw Hamakom, the place. Now, what is the place? The Temple Mount, Mount Moriah. Moriah. Now, this is throughout all of the Bible. We could then say the place could become a euphemism or a code word for the Temple Mount, the place Hamakom. And, And some people even to this day within even especially like modern Judaism, they'll describe the Temple Mount as Hamakom, the place. Okay. So verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there, worship, and return to you. Now this is using the verb shuv, but it's using the plural form of the verb shuv. We will shuv. Now wait a second, is Abraham lying to his servants that he has with him? Avraham, as far as he knows, God told him to go up and to slaughter his son on an altar. Why is he saying to his servants, we will return? Yeah. Because he has the promise. He knows either this guy is going to be resurrected or God's mm. going to have to come up with a replacement. Yeah, so, good. So, there's a lot of Midrashic texts and sayings of the rabbis that say when Avraham was going up there, he knew that he was going to kill his son Isaac, but he also knew that Isaac was going to be resurrected. It's interesting, right? Is there anywhere else I can prove this in the Bible? Lisa? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. I've got a bookmark. I cheated. Hebrews 11. Starting in verse 17, Hebrews eleven seventeen. By trusting Abraham when he was put to the test. Remember that? The test that is being proven here. Offered up Yitzchak as a sacrifice. Yes, he offered up his only son whom he had received. Uh, he, he had received the promises to whom it had been said. What is called your seed will be in Yitzchak. For he had concluded that God could even raise people up from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did so receive him. Wow. So Avraham is like, yes, I am going to obey God and kill my son and sacrifice him on an altar. But I'm also going to believe God and his promise that through Isaac, we will become very numerous. How is he going to do that? He must raise him from the dead. That level of trust is unheard of, right? Think about that. Not only am I going to obey God, I'm going to believe he's going to resurrect my son because he made a promise to me. And God makes promises. He he keeps them. Wow. Wow. I hope that illuminates that a little bit more for you. Verse 7. Oh, we got to back up. Verse 6. Avraham took the eights, the, the tree, or the wood, you could translate it, for the burnt offering, and he did what? He laid it on his son. Why does the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verse 6, go out of its way, to describe how the wood is transported to the place 
of Moriah. Why, do, why does it say that much detail about how the eights, the split wood, is going to make it to the top of Moriah? Why? Maybe thousands of years later, the only son whom he loves will have to carry his own wood. And it says very specifically, he didn't carry the wood like this. What did he do? He laid it on him. Wow. Can't get any more specific than that, right? He laid it on him. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. He probably had it wrapped up in, in something like um, some kind of like skin. He probably had some kind of timber with like a burning coal in it or something, or maybe like a torch. And he took a knife and they both went on together. Yitzchak spoke to Avraham, his father. He says, Avi, my father. He answered, what does Avraham say? He named me my son. He said, I see the fire and the eights, the wood, the tree, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Avraham replied, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went on together. Now, how, how old is Isaac here? Probably in 100, over 100. How old is Isaac? 37. Some people estimate in his 30s. Wow. How old is Avraham? Probably over 100. Yeah, he's nearing a century old. We picture this as being like Isaac being like a little six-year-old or something, right? And even then, that, that guy, have you ever tried to like get a six-year-old to brush his teeth before bedtime? Or get his teeth before bedtime? <laughs> I mean, there's some, like, superhero strength there. You ever tried to change a diaper of a two-year-old and wrestle them to the ground and, like, not to the ground, but to the little bed or whatever, and change your diaper? You ever try to do that? There's some superhuman strength that comes out of a little two-year-old, right? But imagine a man in, in his late 90s, if not over 100, taking a 30-year-old up on a mountain and saying, basically, lay down. I'm about to offer you up to the God of the universe. There's no, there's no match there, is there? What does that say to the willingness of Isaac? He was obedient. Which reminds me, go with me to John 1.29. John 1.29. Was there anyone else who was obedient even unto death? John 1, 29. Yeah, verse, verse 29. The next day, Yochanan saw Yeshua coming toward him and said, Look, it's God's Lamb, the one who is taking away the sins of the world. You see, John is saying and hearkening back and riffing back to where Avraham says... He will provide a lamb. He's not saying that by mistake, is he? So let's keep going. They came to the place that God had told him about, verse 9. And Avraham built a Mizbeach, an altar there. And he set the wood in order. And here, here's the word, akod. He bounds Isaac, his son. Now, this is an interesting word because... 
In Genesis chapters 30 through 31, there's a story that's happening. If you remember, do you guys remember the story with the striped sheep? Remember that? If you go to Genesis 30, go go with me real fast. Genesis 30. We're not going to read all of those chapters, obviously. But Genesis 30, I want, um, unfortunately, the King James Version, not King James, uh, the Complete Jewish Bible has it as speckled. I don't like the speckled. But Genesis 30, it says that Jacob... Remember, Jacob and Laban were having this standoff, and he's like, whatever sheep come out and are born, what? Striped. Striped. It's used, it's used uh, I want to say, seven times in those two chapters. It's translated as striped. This verb is. Which makes sense, because if you're binding someone with ropes, it's like you're putting stripes on their back. You get me? Go with me to Isaiah 53, 7, in light of that. Isaiah 53, actually Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah 53, 5. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Isaiah 53, 5. I didn't bookmark that one. Isaiah 53. We're going to read a couple verses. Isaiah 53, 5. It says, but he was wounded because of our crimes. He was crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell upon him. And by his stripes, we are all healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We turned each one to his own way. Yet Adonai laid on him the guilt of us all. So we could translate this. It just has slightly different vowels. We could translate this as literally, he set the wood in order. And then he gave Yitzhak stripes. And he laid them on the altar, on the wood. Verse 10. Then Abraham put out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. Now, do we hear Isaac uh, ever, like, voicing any concerns about this whole idea? No, we don't. Do we hear him saying, like, Dad, whoa, 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 slow down. What's going on here? What does Isaiah 53 say? He did not open his mouth. Verse 11. Actually, can I read verse 11 in the original language? Because it reads really cool. It says, Vayikra Eli Melech Adonai. And the angel of Adonai called out, Min Hashemayim, from the heavens. Vayomer Avraham. And he said, Avraham. And Abraham, Vayomer, Hineni. There is number three. Vayomer, Adonai, or Vayomer, Abraham, Hineni. You see, he's just so full of, like, surrender and readiness and faith, isn't he? Abraham, Abraham, he answered, Hineni. He said, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you are a man who fears God because you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. So Avraham raised his eyes and he looked and there behind him was an ayil, a, a ram, caught in the sebach. Now, sebach, it, it's translated as bushes in my Bible, but sebach, it means to interweave or to twist together. 
So this ram is caught in this like thicket. Your translation may say thicket, but it's a, it's, a, it's a clump of vegetation that is twisted together so much so that this ram cannot get out. Picture that. Have you guys ever seen, especially here in the south, we have these smilax vines. Yeah. And there are these like really heinous vines that come out of the ground. They're covered with um, thorns and they're real thick and, and they grow in these big clumps under the ground and then they grow up together and they weave all together and twist until they reach a tree and then they grow up to the top of the tree. And they are just so painful. Have you ever get caught up in one of those things? Yeah. Or have you ever been caught up in, in blackberry bushes before when you're picking blackberries? And you're like, oh, I cannot move, right? I am stuck here. That's the picture that we're supposed to see here. Something wound up and twisted. And, and it's, it's locked this ram's horns together. And the, writer, the writers of these three Gospels make it a point to describe the crown of thorns that was laid on Yeshua's head. His head was caught up in, it says, purple robe twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they, put, and they clothed him in purple cloak and they twisting the thorns the, together, they made a crown and put it on his head. All those three gospel writers make it a point to describe that, that crown of thorns being twisted and then put on his head. And it says, we continue here, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. So Abraham called the place Adonai Yireh. Adonai will see it, or Adonai provides. As it is said to this day, on the mountain, Adonai is seen. On what mountain? Moriah. Moriah, yeah. Verse 15. The angel of Adonai called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. He said, I have sworn by myself, says Adonai, that because you have done this, because you haven't withheld your son, your only son, I will most certainly bless you. And I will most certainly increase your descendants to as many as there are stars in the sky or grains of sand in the seashore. Do me a favor. Go over to Numbers 23 real quick. Numbers 23. You guys there? Oh, I don't know what verse. Um, I may have the verse written down here. Let's start at verse 10. Yeah, 9 or 10. Yeah. Verse 9. From the tops of the rocks, now this is Balaam speaking, trying to curse the people of Israel and saying, whatever God tells me to say, I'm going to say it, just so you know. Remember, he's talking to Balak. From the top of the rocks, I see them. From the hills, I behold them. Yes, a people that will dwell alone and not think itself one of the nations who has counted the dust of Yaakov or numbered the ashes of Israel. May I die as the righteous die and may my end be like theirs. So you see already just we're just to the point of Balaam and Balak hundreds of years later. And he's saying, who can number these people? Right. Then go. Let's keep going and go back to Genesis 22. He says, your descendants will possess the gates of their enemies 
Which reminds me of Yeshua saying what? That the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Now go with me to Numbers 23, 24. Flip back over there. Numbers 23, 24. We're going to see Balaam echo this as well. 23, 24. Here is the people rising up like a lioness. Like a lion, he rears himself up. He will not lie down till he eats up the prey or drinks up the blood of the slain. Let's keep going back to Genesis 22. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now flip back over to Numbers 24.9. Balaam says, When they lie down, they crouch like a lion or like a lioness who dares to rouse it. Blessed be all those who bless them and cursed be all those who curse them. You see, Balaam is echoing this just a couple hundred years later, a few hundred years later. But God's saying, by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? Because you obeyed my order. So verse 19 says, Avraham. Now, did Isaac return? It just says, Avraham returned. Solo to his young men. Where is Isaac? We don't know. Now, some people go on to speculate that Avraham returns empty-handed Without Isaac, Sarah sees this and she's so stricken with grief, even before as Avraham is leaving, knowing what Avraham is going to do. She's so stricken with grief that it leads to her own death. And I hate to spoil uh, the next chapter, but we're going to see Sarah die right after the story. Is it true? I don't know. But they got them together and they went to Beersheba and Avraham settled in Beersheba. And afterwards, Avraham was told... Milka too has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uts is firstborn. Buz his brother. Kemuel, the father of Aram. Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Betuel. Betuel, father of Rivka. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Avraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore children also. Tevach, Gacham, Tachash, and Maacha. I feel like you guys should give me a round of applause for saying all those names that fast, but it's okay. No, don't worry about it. <laughs> but this is the last we see of Isaac until when? Eliezer, good. Eliezer is commissioned to find him a bride. And who is the bride? Rivka. Now, Rivka to me represents the Gentile bride, while Isaac represents Yeshua, who is being hidden from his kinsmen for a while. You see the prophetic qualities there? So some lessons I pulled out of the story of the Akeda. Akeda. So here are some lessons. The essence of God's testing is to examine the condition and motivation of our hearts. It's not manipulative, nor is it vindictive. It has a purpose and a reward. See, that's what I love about the biblical worldview is that we have purpose behind our suffering. The secular worldview has no answer for suffering. We say suffering, yes, that's God refining us. It's God proving us. That's him testing our hearts. Now, let's, I don't know if I want to go there right now. Let's, um, yeah, I do. Uh, real fast, let me take you over to Job chapter 23, verse 10. And I'm going to prove to you real quick. If you don't believe testing is part of your faith, I hope this wakes you up a little bit to that reality. 
Job 23.10. Job says, yet he knows the way I take. And when he has tested me, I will come out like gold. God likes to take righteous people and to test them, to refine them, to prove them, but then also to watch the faith and the response of people around them. Sometimes a testing is more so for people who are surrounding the righteous person being tested than it is for the righteous person being tested. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Therefore, my dear friends, run from idolatry. Oh, I'm too far. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experience. And God can be trusted not to allow you to be tested beyond what you can bear. On the contrary, along with the testing or the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you will be able to endure. Okay, that's Paul talking. Let's see what James has to say. Turn with me to James chapter 1. James 1. And I, you're going to hear me swap out the word temptation for trials or testing because I don't like the translation temptation because it's not temptations. God, God's not putting temptations to sin in front of you. He's testing you with various trials. Does that make sense? Yes. So verse 2, James 1, 2. Regard it as all joy, my brothers, <laughs> when you face various kinds of perosmas or trials. For you know that the testing of your trust produces perseverance. But let that perseverance do its complete work so that you may be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. Wow. Count it all as all joy. Now, I don't know. When I think about like the DMF Beach Day, I get all joy. Like, okay, yeah, that sounds fun. There's a lot of joy in that, right? Or playing volleyball and, and beating Chris and Anthony at volleyball. Like, I get a lot of joy out of that. Not them, but Chris is shaking his head no. But what? She said, have you ever beaten them? I don't know. So that's joyful to me. But being tested is not joyful, right? Far from it. But James is calling us to be joyful in that. I'd like to ask James how we go about doing that. James, I'm sorry, let's flip over to the last verse. I want to take you to the New Testament here. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. 1 Peter 1, 5. Meanwhile, through trusting, you are being protected by God's power for a deliverance ready to be revealed at the last time. Here it is, verse 6. Rejoice in this, even though for a little while you may have to experience grief. In various trials. Even gold is tested for its genuineness by fire. The purpose of these trials is so that your trust, genuineness, which is far more valuable than perishable gold, will be judged worthy of praise, glory, and honor at the revealing of Yeshua the Messiah. Wow. Again, I want to ask Peter how we go about doing that at some point, but. So trust through the testing, right? Now, here's another lesson I took from uh, this story. You all will have your he nay moments, right? 
that lead into calling and testing. The question is, will we choose our own will or will we surrender to his and allow that testing and trial to play out? I don't know. I hope I'm ready. We should pray. And it's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. But again, I want to swap it out. I think temptation is a good translation. I think trials or testing is a good, is a good, uh, good translation. Here's another lesson I learned. We fail, we fail the testing that he leads us into when we choose not to accept or we accept it, but our hearts are still prideful, resentful, and untrusting. We have this appearance of godliness, but inwardly we're still rebellious. Can anybody say the messianic movement? Hello? Yes. Full of outward godliness, but inwardly full of dead men's bones. More and more, the, more, the longer I do this that I'm doing right now, the more I'm convinced that I have been sent to share the gospel of the kingdom with messianic Hebrew roots people who think that they got it all put together but are often full of dead man's bones. They have the appearance of godliness. Wow. Now, not everybody. We pass the test at the eclipsing of our physical obedience with the proper motivation of our hearts. When those two are in alignment, I'm not saying obedience is bad. I'm saying obedience with the proper heart and attitude and motivation is where it's at. That's when we pass the test. Do we obey because we have to or because we get notoriety or because we look good when we do it or because we can win arguments on Facebook doing it? Or do we obey because we love God and he saved us from our sins and provided a lamb through which we could have atonement and salvation? That's all the difference. And lastly, the pages of Scripture are full of hints at the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. You can see it in the story, can you not? It's all over. But does the reading of this text cause your heart to burn within you? Go with me to Luke chapter 22 real quick. Luke 22. I think it's Luke 22. I think I'm, I'm, too, I'm too far back. Here it is, Luke 24. You guys know this story. Verse 13, Luke 24, 13. That same day, two of them were going toward a village about seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And as they talked and discussed, Yeshua himself came up and walked along with them. Something kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you talking about with each other as you walk along the way? They stopped short, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only person staying in Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have been going on the last few days? What things, he asked them. They said to him, the things about Yeshua from Nazareth. He was a prophet and proved it by the things he did and said before God and all the people. Our head priest and our leaders handed him over to him so he could be sentenced to death and executed on a tree as a criminal. 
And we had hoped that he would be the one to liberate Israel. Besides all that, today is the third day since these things have happened. And this morning, some of the women astounded us. They were at the tomb early and they couldn't find his body, so they came back. But they also reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he's alive. And some of our friends went to the tomb and found it exactly as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, foolish people, so unwilling to put your trust in everything the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to die like this before entering his glory? Then, starting with the Torah, Moshe, it says, Moses, which is code word for the Torah, including the book of Genesis, and all the prophets, he explained to them the things that can be found throughout the Tanakh, the scriptures, concerning himself. They approached the village where they were going, and he made it as if they were going on, he go, go going on farther. But they held him back saying, stay with us, for it's almost evening and it's getting dark. So he went in to stay with them, and he was reclining with the table. He took matzah, and he made a bracha, and he broke it, and he handed it to them. Their eyes were open, and they recognized him. But uh, he became invisible to them, and they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn inside us as he spoke to us on the road, opening up the scriptures to us? Wow. I wonder like what stories they went through. <laughs> but I would assume he went and took them through. Don't you remember the Akeda? Don't you remember the binding of Isaac? The son, the only son? Don't you remember the, the ropes and the stripes and the crown of thorns and the wood that was laid upon him? You remember all that? And he's taking them through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, kind of like I just did with the Akeda. Yeah, a lot of time, seven miles is a long walk, right? It's profound. But I hope this story caused your heart to burn within you. God's love is so great for us that a few thousand years before his son, his only son whom he loved, is crucified on you, your and I behalf, he put a story in the Bible that describes it and hints at it and says, guys, the Redeemer's coming. And it will look something like this. It's on its way. Get ready. That's awesome, right? You guys have any uh, questions or comments before we uh, wrap up for the day? Questions or comments? We've got a few minutes. Anything? Yeah, Patrick. Take care of these plants, but out of the love for their father, they went ahead and, 
and took care of it. And uh, they, you know, they didn't even tell them or anything like that. So they watered them, they, they, they weeded out this garden, and it was, it was just like how he left it, mm. uh, you know, after he had that accident, before he had that accident. So when he came back, after healing and, and spending that time in the hospital, he was just, he was totally expecting to be in, in shambles, but he was flourishing. And he was so happy. The thing was, uh, you know, he rejoiced over his son. He said, thank you for doing this. And he was just so happy. You know, he just, there teenagers. He could have just bought them a car right then and there mm. on the spot. Wow. And uh, the thing was, you know, the, the story that I guess what was running through his mind is he loved his sons. He said, even if you didn't do this, you were still my son. Yeah. But because you did this, I'm just so pleased. Yeah. This. And it's kind of like you're following the commandments in a way. Yeah. Right. We follow the commandments, not because we get any street cred or anything like that. Yeah. That, and you might as well not be following them to an extent. Um, if your heart's not in it, you're yeah. just checking on boxes. Well, yeah, I always go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, with that too. And um, I actually wanted to do that during the teaching, but forgot. Deuteronomy 8, 2. God says, um, actually, 8.1, all the commandments I'm giving you today, you're to take careful to obey them so that you will live, increase in your numbers, and take possession of the land Adonai swore about to your ancestors, including Abraham. Here it is, verse 2, you are to remember everything the way which Adonai led you these 40 years in the desert, humbling you and testing you in order to know what was on your hearts, whether you would obey his mitzvot, his commandments, or not. Yeah. He's all about testing and revealing the heart, the condition of the heart. But I forgot this slide. Can I, can I read this real fast and then, and then do a question? Um, I, I skipped this for some reason, but I want to come back to it. I think I need, it's worth saying. It's one thing to endure testing, right? But how are you at leading your children through testing that will impact their lives and influence them? Are we willing to subject them to temporary discomforts for the sake of them seeing us being obedient to God's will? That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Um, I remember when I was a child, my parents used to take me to a dentist called Dr. Demetrius, right? And did he believe in Novocaine or did he not use Novocaine? Did not use Novocaine. And why did you guys take me to this dentist? <laughs> so this, this past week, Stacy took Micah to the dentist. And I guess Micah was not enjoying himself at the dentist. And nowadays they got that like gas they can put over your face and like calm you down. And they give you a shot of Novocaine and you're super like numbed out, right? I'm like, listen, when I was your age kid, I went to Dr. Demetrius. And I'm sorry, if your parents are trying to take you to Dr. Demetrius, run away. Just hop on the next train going out of town. Just go. So they would literally pin me in the chair while Dr. Demetrius would drill out fillings with no Novocaine. So, but why did they do that? Why, why did they take me to Dr. Demetrius? Now, I know they're trying to save money, but they couldn't take Why did we take Micah to the dentist to get a couple fillings? Why did we subject him to discomfort, even though he was not enjoying himself, and it was uncomfortable and probably painful at times? Why did we do that for our children? Ultimately, there's a benefit. Exactly. Because we know in the long run, if we just let that tooth decay, if we let you have your way, you will get an abscess tooth, the infection will grow, it might make it into your bloodstream, and you might die. I mean, really, that's it. We're going to subject you to a little bit of temporal pain to bring about long-term sustenance and healing. And that's the essence of when, when your children 
watch you lead your family through testing, they learn so much more than if you don't lead them through testing. If you're courageous enough to lead your family into that, your children come out refined as well. They see mom and dad are willing to be weird, willing to take away things that bring me enjoyment. They're willing to induce discomfort in my life for the sake of my long-term benefits. It takes courage to do that. And in your child's life, it might look like movies. It might be high fructose corn syrup. It might be um, certain friends that have a different culture and it might be video game, whatever the case may be. If you inflict a little bit of discomfort on them because you know that that is not of God, and I'm gonna take a courageous stand and say, no, we're not gonna dress up like, like demons and go beg strangers for candy. We're gonna take a courageous stance and that, even though that's not even that courageous, it's just common sense. We're gonna take a courageous stand in that. It's gonna cause you a little discomfort and weirdness but you know what? You're going to appreciate seeing mom and dad courageous than you're going to, more so than you're going to see them having a weak spine. Make sense? Lead your family through testing and be honest with them. Honesty is so important when you're leading them through testing, saying, guys, I know it's hard right now. I know, I know you look weird doing this or not doing that. They have this and you don't have it. Just be honest with them. I just really feel like that's not of God. And I really feel like that's not something for our family. They may see it different. They may do it differently. That's okay. We still respect and love them. For our family, we're going to take a stand on this and we're not going to engage in that. Try that. They will appreciate your courage. Maybe not right then and there, but they will. So uh, going back to Tanya, I saw your hand. Yeah, that's a difference in, in manuscript, the origin of the manuscript and the translation of it. Um, Xavier, is that a Septuagint versus Masoretic thing? I'm actually about to look it up, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Well, I'll get back to you on that. I think it's a Septuagint versus Masoretic thing. Um, so the Septuagint is a, is a Greek copy of the Hebrew Bible. Masoretic is the Hebrew copy of it's the, it's, it's, it's the Hebrew Bible. Okay. There are variances between the two texts. So when we try to translate into English, translators have to say, well, do I go with what the Septuagint says there or do I go with the Masoretic, what it says there? Um, more often than not, I think the complete Jewish Bible goes with the Masoretic, if I'm not mistaken. Like the ESV, what do you have? Uh, complete Jewish. Complete Jewish. Uh, the ESV is going to side typically with the Septuagint with footnotes. Um, so I like it when there's footnotes, you know, to say like this says that or that says this. So very good question. Though. We'll have to get back to you on that. But I think that's what it is. So Jason. Years, kind of. We have this huge volume of literature, but it's like you have to have that spiritual 
insight. Insight. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy for us in 2023 to turn back and look at this text, having our knowledge of the Gospels and, and the historicity of the events of the New Testament and look back and overlay that and say, okay, yeah, I get all that now. I see that this is pointing to the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. But I wonder if we didn't have that. Let's say we're living in the year 500 BC and we read this text. I wonder how much we would get. So in other words, when those events then when the events transpire, I think we go, ah, okay, that's what's going on. Okay. Which I tell people the same is true with things like the book of Revelation, things like Ezekiel. There's a lot of apocalyptic prophecies in the Bible that we want to try to unravel, you know, and like figure out when is the second coming going to happen? What is it going to look like? All this other stuff. I tell people, pause, pause, time out. Calm down. Because when people read the Akeda, when people read Isaiah 53, I don't know how much clarity they walked away with when reading those texts. I don't know how much clarity you're going to walk away with with taking a 10-hour YouTube course on the book of Revelation. You might be better off spending that time going fishing with your grandkids. You see what I'm saying? Okay, or, or doing something like that, or just going on a cruise with your wife or something. That might, because here's the thing, I don't think we're supposed to be able to unravel all that just yet. There's a blessing that comes with studying the book of Revelation, but I think we're supposed to take the book of Revelation, be familiar with it, and then as the events hit, and we're like, okay, we're turning on the news. Oh, okay, yeah, I can see now how, yeah, through like this ESG garbage that's going on, how they could prohibit people from buying and selling, right? Or they can put everything in a chip. I mean, we're making like chips and processors like size of like molecules now. It's crazy. I can see now how the whole world will know something simultaneously or they can click a button and basically shut off our existence. Okay, yeah, I see you. That's starting to pan out a little bit now, okay? And you can kind of be seen to see. So I hope that, that makes sense. Like you can see, ah, there's illumination here now. So we're hitting these events. Now we're understanding them. But to look at the book of Revelation and say, oh, I got all figured out now. <laughs> I think that's. I tell my kids that like, it's just like how you recognize a meme. Like, you have some familiarity with yeah. the concept. Yeah, yeah. You have to laugh at the meme, but God has his own way of doing it. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I saw Lisa's hand and a little Michael. Lisa. Yeah, I've heard it said many times that prophecy is most easily understood when it's history. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like that. That's good. I'll steal that. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Uh, Michael. Oh, I like that too. Uh-huh. <laughs> Write it in pencil. If you're going to keep a prophetic calendar, keep it in pencil. So I like that. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, it almost sounds like it could be both. By his stripes we are healed, and through the fellowship of his suffering. Yeah, that's good. 
All right. Uh, did I see a hand over here? Oh, see. And then we'll go back there to Jeremy. It's like a evening of the scales. You didn't trust me enough to wait for Isaac. You took Hagar. Therefore, you need to offer up Isaac and show me that you do trust me now yeah, on a different, almost a different level. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, that's good. Stacey will be teaching next week. I'm just... <laughs> yeah. Oh, I skipped Jennifer. I'm so sorry. Can I go back to Jennifer? I told her I would go to her after Stacey. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Jennifer. I was thinking about Jennifer's question about Jesus and Jesus' words. You're getting a look right now. <laughs> we get 
But it's rare, right? It's very rare. We give in, and we had to deal with the consequences. Yeah. But, you know, and that goes back to another passage. All things work together for good and the love of the Lord. All according to his purpose. It may not seem like a good thing. Yeah. But it'll work out to the benefit. And when you're going through these trials, it doesn't seem like a good thing, but you have to hold back to that. All things. The thing in itself may not be good or seem good, yeah. but it will work. You do benefit you just hold on to the Lord's hand yeah. and persevere. Yeah, and it may not even be in your lifetime that it works back for good. But. Exactly. All right, let's take a couple more questions and we're going to wrap up. Yeah. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I thought you were pointing at her, but go ahead and find I am all over the place today with these questions. Sorry. semi-traumatic experience. I would say a traumatic experience. Yeah. 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 Like what just happened. Is my dad crazy or is this God real? Yeah. 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 I mean, that. yeah, that's interesting to think that through. How would he have reacted to all of that? It's interesting. Isaac and Jacob, yeah. Wow. Yeah. How old is Sarah when she gave birth to Isaac? 80. 90, I think, yeah. 90. He died at 137, so he was Isaac. Isaac was, yeah. Um, Crystal, I saw your hand up. But we'll make Crystal the last question of the day. And then, uh, oh, there's another one? it's interesting how like biblical literacy is decreasing so awareness of how the end times will play out is decreasing but those events that are setting the stage for the end times are increasing so there's a proportional relationship there and you think like how would people and how would people this same age ever take a chip or this or that it's like well for safety and security that people do a lot of things especially if biblical literacy is really down and they have never heard the passages of scriptures ever read to them in, in that context, so yeah, you had something. Up on what you said, yeah. What, because Isaac is a form or a shadow of Messiah. Yeah. Messiah went into the wilderness to be tested for forty days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When he started his ministry at that about the same age, right? Yes. So yeah. So he was in his thirties when that happened. Yeah, that's another parallel. Oh yeah, like post the uh, the post the altar experience. Yeah, that's good. 
All right, guys, great questions and comments today. I'll be up here if you have any more or whatever, but thank you so much for your discussion. Next week, uh, it's going to be different. We're not going to get into Genesis 23. We're instead doing the foot washing service. We're going to have something a little bit different. We'll have some praise and worship music playing like we do every year, but we're also going to have uh, a Bible open up here to the gospel starting, um, I think, do we say Adrian or Ariana? Did we say what? John? Did we talk about a combination of Matthew and John, and we're just going to take, people can come up and read into a microphone, starting with the Last Supper and going to the end of Yeshua's burial, death, death, burial, and resurrection. As people's feet are being washed, there will be readers up here just reading publicly into the microphone portions of that narrative, about you know five or ten verses, and then just taking turns and doing that. So while feet are being washed, that will be read in the background. So we're going to try that and see if, if that works out. But uh, let's close in prayer, and then we're going to do the ironic benediction. Don't forget, if you serve on the worship team, any worship team in any capacity, meet up here right after service. Abba Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your love that you have for us and your willingness to call us children through your son's shed blood. Father, I ask if there's anyone that has not placed their faith, their hope, and trust in Yeshua as our salvation, that they would do so today. That they would open up and they would share Uh, With me, their need for salvation, or or the other elders of this congregation, their need for salvation. Father, that they will be convicted and fall under the, the Holy Spirit's conviction of their sin. As we're approaching the last days and his return, that they would embrace him and have a personal relationship with him today. We thank you so much for his shed blood. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, this week's uh, reading is found in Genesis 22. If you want to turn your Bibles there, I would appreciate it. Genesis 22. This is a, this is a jam-packed little chapter here. You know, it's only uh, 24 verses or so long. But in here, there is so much. And we could spend, I would say, a better part of a month, four weeks, probably teaching through this chapter alone, how much is jam-packed into this. And uh, this is... This is a daunting task for me to teach through it and to try to really convey the essence of this chapter. This is a huge chapter. The book of Genesis, if you look at it, the book of Genesis just alone, a standalone narrative. Let's just pull that that book out of the five books of the Torah and look at the book of Genesis. It's a narrative that it describes the gospel in a very, what I would describe as like progressively revelatory way. So you have in Genesis 3, you have, this, you have the fall of man, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, you have a hint at a snake crusher that's going to come and, and crush the head of the serpent, right? And then you have a couple other little, little downfalls. You have like Noah, and you have these little spikes of like, and when I say spike, I don't mean like the, the level of morality of human beings. I'm talking about a spike in revelation of God's plan to redeem and restore his creation, okay? 
and we get to Genesis 22, we're going to see a big spike there in, in our level of revelation of what God has in store for us as humanity and how he's going to bring it all back together, how, how he's going to bring about salvation. Okay, and then when we, I say, I, I think when we get to the end of Genesis, things are going to really slow down. In Genesis chapter 37, through the end of Genesis, we're going to be introduced to a new character who's a suffering servant, who is betrayed by his brothers, who is um, sold into, into Egypt. And, and we're going to see a huge spike in the level of revelation we see about God's um, redemptive plan that we nowadays, looking back, can say that's the gospel. Genesis 22 is one of those spikes that we're going to see, one of these big aha moments that we're going to have in terms of what God has. We're really slowing down the story right here in this chapter. If you think about it, we're only 20 chapters, 20, 21 chapters into the Bible, and things are moving really quickly. When it hits Abraham, things slow down to a crawl in terms of the, the chronological progression of this narrative. And we go just... Day by day, almost year by year, with Abraham, and up until the, the end of the, the story of Abraham, and you're going to see that in Genesis chapter 22, things really slow down even more as we go through this narrative. Now, this story is called for those Hebrew readers the Akkad, or and, and it's called the Akidah. The Akidah, the Akkad means to bind. Now, when I told you to bind like you thought maybe with the ropes you were seeing the good the bad and the ugly with the end where he binds him and behind he ties his wrist behind his back and remember that at the end and the guy is like they're trying to get that money out of the grave and all that stuff and he binds him with the ropes the Clint Eastwood guy does and um and leaves him right rides off there hanging leaves leaves him but then he turns around and shoots the rope just in time to save the guy's life just to teach the guy kind of a lesson, like you left me hanging literally, I'm going to leave you hanging, but then I'm going to save your life at the last second, and then you're going to have all this money and everything. But he bound his hands behind his back, and he couldn't even get the money. He was laying there on this money, and it was kind of this moment of irony where he, his life was saved, but his hands were bound. And uh, you ever seen, have you ever seen someone that gets bound by ropes, and the, the ropes are tied really tightly, and you take the ropes off, what are left? There's marks, like stripes, yeah, almost like if you, if you wound something around your arm really tightly, you'd have these stripes. But this, um, we'll get that, that a little bit later. But this story of the Akidah is pivotal in all of Judaism to this day. So much to the point that the Akedah is read every single day in the morning Shakarit prayers. For those who don't know, Jews pray three times daily. And the morning one is called the Shacharit. This story, a recap of the story, is said at the beginning of the morning prayers every single day. As a way to invoke the righteousness of their father Abraham, our father Abraham, before going into a time of prayer. It's said seven days a week, 12 months a year. And it's read specifically at Rosh Hashanah in synagogues. And then it's read again in the Torah cycle, as we read through the Torah cycle. That's around 367 times a year that this story is read in the life of an observant Jew. That is a very big and important story. Do you understand? I hope I can convey that enough for you. Let's, um, let's dig into it, if you don't mind. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. 
It says, after these things. Now, what are the things that we're after? You remember uh, Mike did a good job teaching last week. What, what did he teach on? What happened? Remember Hagar and Ishmael were cast out of the camp. They were exiled. Remember, Abraham had a moment of not trusting that Sarah would conceive, and he, con- he took he seized the fruit by force. Remember, kind of the Garden of Eden narrative. And he had a child with Hagar, but eventually Sarah and Hagar, they don't get along, go figure. Like any polygamous relationship in the Bible happens just that way. And then Hagar, someone has to pay. Hagar gets cast out, right? And Ishmael is out there as well. And it says, after all that happens, all that awkwardness and and dysfunction happens, it says, after all these things, God nasa Avraham. Now this word there, nasa in the Hebrew, how many of you have tested? Okay. I think a better translation, mine is tested as well. I think a better translation is to prove. He wanted to prove Abraham. So he said to him, Avraham. And he answered, what did he answer? He named me. This is important because this is the very first time we see this phrase show up in the Torah. He named me. Anywhere in the Bible for that matter. He named me. We're going to see this phrase several more times though. He named me. And he's saying, here I am. It's not as if God doesn't know where Abraham is. He knows where he is. He's not talking about, here I am, my geographical location. What is he saying by hineni? Hineni is a compound word. It's two Hebrew words smushed together. Him, like a chicken, him, and ani. And it's saying, him means behold or to look. Look, him. Ani means me, I. So Abraham is responding, behold me. Hineni is an offer of complete availability. It's a, it's a phrase which indicates total readiness to serve. It's a simple statement of faith. I don't know, yeah, I don't know what you have in store for me, but behold, here I am. Hineni. Hineni. We're going to see this repeated. It's a very loaded phrase, but it's a phrase of surrender. It's interesting that it comes right on the heels of what happened with Hagar and Ishmael. It seems like Abraham has had this very come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, after watching Hagar and his son and the repercussions of his own sin and and the dysfunction that, that has brought into his family, his lack of trusting that is brought on his family. He had to watch that unfold. And then some time passes, and then God calls him again and says, are you ready to trust me now? And he says what? He named me. Here I am. Right? We're going to see this pop up again. Go with me to Exodus 3.1. Exodus 3.1. I want to convey to you the gravity of this phrase, he named me. Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was tending sheep, the sheep of his father-in-law, Yitro, the priest of Midian. He was leading the flock to a far side of the desert, and he came to the mountain, the mountain of God, to Horev, 
The angel of Adonai appeared to him in a fire blazing from the middle of the bush. He looked and saw, although the bush was flaming with fire, yet the bush was not being burned up. Moshe said, I'm, go, I'm going to go over and see this amazing sight and find out why the bush is not being consumed. And when Adonai saw that he had gone over to see, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moshe, Moshe. And he answered, here it is, Hineni. Here I am. Go with me to Isaiah 6 now. Isaiah chapter 6. Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu 6. Go to verse 8. Now, Isaiah obviously is a profound prophet that's going to have a lot of revelation to share with us from God about the coming Mashiach, about Messiah. And here, towards the beginning of his whole revelation that he's going to give, it says in verse 8, Isaiah 6, 8, Then I heard the voice of Adonai saying, Whom should I send? Whom will go for us? And I, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, answered, Hineni, send me. So this phrase is not the only times we see this phrase, Hineni, but every time we see it, something big is about to happen. Someone is showing a posture of surrender to the Most High in some way. But this is the first occurrence of it. It's exciting. And we're going to see, watch with me how many times Abraham is going to use this phrase. Verse 2. He said, Take your benecha, your son, et yachid asher ahava. Take your only son, your yachid. Notice it doesn't use echad, which can mean more than one, but unified. It uses yachid. Your only son. Is this, is this Avraham's only son? No. no, he has Ishmael as well. But it puts a qualifier in there. It says, your only son, Asher Ahava. Ahava. And what does Ahava mean? Love. Love. Now, this word Ahava is another compound word. It, uh, it, the root of it, I should say, is Hav. Does anyone know what Hav means? It means to give. To give. It's a gift. So ahava means an action of giving. And I always tell people, you can love someone, but it's evidenced through your giving to them. Not just talking about material possessions, I'm talking about your giving of yourself to them in some way. But you cannot love someone and not give to them. All right, you got me? Now this reminds me, obviously, of John 3.16. You can quote it from memory. For God so what? Love the world that he gave. You see the connection there? His who? Only son. Okay, we're supposed to hear that going on in this, in this narrative right now. And it says, whom you love. Now, this is the very first time we see the word love in the entire Bible. This is it right here. And it says, Yitzchak, which means laughter, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, that's important there as well, because what will be built according to the sages on the Mount of Moriah? The temple. the temple will. The temple will be built on Mount Moriah. He is going to the place, the future home of the Beit Hamikdash, the holy temple. Now, can we prove that from the Bible, though? Yeah, I wouldn't ask that question if I couldn't, right? <laughs> Go with me to 2 Chronicles 3.1. Go with me to 2 Chronicles 3.1. 2 Chronicles 3.1. It 
Sometimes, you know, sages, they say things, and we're like, oh man, I don't know. But then sometimes they're like spot on. Second Chronicles 3.1 says, I know you're still turning there, but I'll, read, I'll take one for the team and just read it for you here. It says, then Solomon began to build the house of Adonai in Jerusalem on where? Mount Moriah, where Adonai had appeared to his father, David. Interesting. So there it is. It lines up. We're going to the Temple Mount to sacrifice his only son, the son whom he loves. Now, I remember I grew up in church. I grew up in Sunday school. Um, and even after Stacy and I got married, you know, I don't know if this counts, but we were Presbyterians for a number of years. And then, but I remember, <laughs> got some laughs at it. I remember the first time going to a Messianic synagogue. It's probably been 13, 12, 13 years ago. I don't know. And hearing, one of the first times I was there, the rabbi was teaching on the Akeda, this passage of scripture. And I remember for the first time ever hearing it taught as if this is a prefigurative uh, shadow of the crucifixion of Yeshua. Now, some of you, maybe you already knew that. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, that's, duh, come on. I learned that in, in, in like at nine years old in Sunday school. Well, I didn't know that. So when I first heard this taught by a Messianic rabbi and he's sharing this from his perspective, I was, my mind was blown. So it's exciting to be able to teach us today and weave that back into it. He says though, go to Mount Moriah. Then you, there you are to offer, you're to Allah. Allah, like it means to go up, to go up and smoke. It's, or it, you know, remember in Genesis 2, 6, where it says that the earth was, the, that the mist would go up and it would water the earth. You guys remember that? That's that same verb, Allah. If you go in, a, in an elevator in Israel right now, um, it's called the uh, Aliyim, those going up. It's a, it's a, it's a go up. Offer him up as a burnt offering on a, on a mountain that I will point out to you. Verse 3. Avraham got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him together with Yitzchak, his son. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. And it says here, like literally, he, he made a becca with the wood. He broke it in half. Uh, baka means to split. He split the wood for the burnt offering. This is also later a becca is what we describe as the temple tax. It's half a shekel. It's a broken shekel. It's the temple tax called a becca. He departed there and went toward the hamakom, the place God had told him about. On the third day, Avram raised his eyes and saw hamakom, the place. Now, what is the place? The Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah. Now, this is throughout all of the Bible. We could then say the place could become a euphemism or a code word for the Temple Mount, the place Hamakom, and and some people even to this day, within even especially like modern Judaism, they'll describe the Temple Mount as Hamakom, the place. Okay. So verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there, worship, and return to you. Now this is using the verb shuv, but it's using the plural form of the verb shuv. We will shuv. Now wait a second, is Abraham lying to his servants that he has with him? 
Avraham, as far as he knows, God told him to go up and to slaughter his son on an altar. Why is he saying to his servants, we will return? Yeah. Because he has the promise. He knows either this guy's going to be resurrected or God's mm. going to have to come up with a replacement. Yeah, so, good. So there's a lot of Midrashic texts and sayings of the rabbis that say when Avraham was going up there, he knew that he was going to kill his son Isaac, but he also knew that Isaac was going to be resurrected. It's interesting, right? Is there anywhere else I can prove this in the Bible? Lisa? Yes. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. I've got it bookmarked. I cheated. Hebrews 11. Starting in verse 17. Hebrews 11, 17. By trusting Abraham when he was put to the test. Remember that? The test that is being proven here. Offered up Yitzchak as a sacrifice. Yes, he offered up his only son whom he had received. Uh, he, he had received the promises. To whom it had been said. What is called your seed will be in Yitzchak. For he had concluded that God could even raise people up from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did so receive him. Wow. So Avraham is like, yes, I am going to obey God and kill my son and sacrifice him on an altar. But I'm also going to believe God and his promise that through Isaac, we will become very numerous. How is he going to do that? He must raise him from the dead. That level of trust is unheard of, right? Think about that. Not only am I going to obey God, I'm going to believe he's going to resurrect my son because he made a promise to me and God makes promises. He, he keeps them. Wow. I hope that illuminates that a little bit more for you. Verse 7. Oh, we got to back up. Verse 6. Avraham took the eights, the, the tree, or the wood, you could translate it, for the burnt offering, and he did what? He laid it on his son. Why does the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verse 6, go out of its way, to describe how the wood is transported to the place of Moriah. Why, do, why does it say that much detail about how the eights, the split wood, is going to make it to the top of Moriah? Why? Maybe thousands of years later, the only son whom he loves will have to carry his own wood. And it says very specifically, he didn't carry the wood like this. What did he do? 